0: My name is Dr. Carol Palmer. Many of you, as you many of you know, I am the uh, director of the institute here. Uh, this lecture tonight is um, part of our series with the uh, French Research Institute, the mm-hmm. Institut Français du Proche Orient (IFPO). Um, my colleague uh, from the French Institute who is coming is stuck in the traffic this evening, but she will join us um, join us shortly. Um, it is a, a great pleasure for me to uh, introduce to you tonight, uh, Dr. Philip Proudfoot, to to give his lecture. Lebanon can't give him a future. Uh, Dr. Philip is the new assistant director at the institute, so it's my great pleasure to introduce him to you. This evening. He's an anthropologist and he's going to be um, telling you about um, his PhD research that he recently completed at the London School of Economics. He has been to Jordan before but he's actually very new in Jordan. He's just been in the position for two and a half weeks So so he's very experienced as you'll find about Lebanon but he's finding out what's happening in Jordan and he's Love to meet some of you, talk to you um, after the lecture. And uh, he's very excited, and uh, I'm very happy that he agreed to do this lecture this evening. So, um, Philip, if I can ask you to start. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Uh, is, it, is this clear enough? Can everyone hear me okay? Uh, so, thank you very much, uh, Carol, for dropping me in at the deep end with a public lecture as soon as I started my new job. But this is also the first public lecture I've given on, on my uh, PhD research. Of course, I've done the seminar circuit and their conferences, but this is my first big public lecture. So what I thought I'd give to you is a general overview, but an overview that's still informed ethnographically. So if there's anything that I talk about that seems a bit underdeveloped, please ask me about it in the questions, because hopefully I have covered that in the actual thesis. And in the future, I hope that this will look something like my book talk when eventually I get round to having this thing published. Um, so a bit about me as I started, uh, when I started my PhD, I initially wrote my uh, proposal on Syrian military service abscondees, so the guys who wanted to escape from military service and go and work elsewhere. And then... It reached 2011 and my thesis then, my proposal then collapsed and it was examined. My upgrade was examined as a work of fiction. It passed, thankfully. So then I moved to Lebanon uh, thinking initially, tempor- I would only be there temporarily. And then I would find, you know, some space to go back to, to Beirut. Like a lot of the guys I'll be talking about here also imagined that they would be in Beirut temporarily. But as it wore on and the uprising developed, I realized I would have to then start making a new project uh, in Lebanon. And that's what I've tried to do. So let me just flick this over. OK. So the pictures aren't necessarily connected to who I'm talking about. Just I put them up so you get an idea of the sort of scenes in which uh, migrant laborers live. So I'm thinking about divorcing my wife, said Abdullah, between gulps of Turkish beer. Are you shocked, Philip? I thought you'd have no idea. But what can I do? She wants me to leave for Germany, but I want to stay here, next to Syria. I love Syria. All I want is to return to my village someday. But Dala, she says she wants to live in the city. She doesn't care about tribal tradition. You know, I loved the revolution, but she's not interested anymore. When my friends come over, she gets annoyed, especially if we eat on the floor. She throws down forks at our guests, saying, don't eat with your hands, we're developed now. It was in December 2015 when the newlywed Abdullah decided to pass by my apartment for a drink. Abdullah is a 26-year-old Syrian worker from rural eastern Syria, and he's also uh, also a one-time student at the Lebanese University. We met in the summer of 2012, by which point he'd participated both directly and indirectly in the uprising. I much admired Abdullah's capacity for insight, and soon he agreed to become my primary research informant uh, for a doctoral project that I was conducting, examining ethnographically the lives of Syrian workers, rebels, and refugees in Beirut. Together, we've carried out over 30 months of participant observation, combined uh, semi-structured interviews, focus groups, population surveys, image archiving, and the like. In my work, I've classified the men we interviewed as rebel workers, because all, though with varying degrees of enthusiasm, at times did express anti-regime positions. Some returned to protest and others to fight. But on the other hand, there was an additional and more macro level of hybridization of their two identities, by which I mean the economic conditions, which which now many scholars suggest increased dependence on American remittance flows and laid the foundation for the uprising at the same time. In this lecture, what I'm going to do is take various steps back from our current moment of crisis and in so doing reveal the conditions in which Abdullah and men like him traveled to Beirut, but nonetheless found means to participate in what they call, on what he called, and some still call, the revolution. As an anthropologist, my aim is to add a drop of color to the otherwise over-determining rehearsing of positions that has come to characterize much popular and scholarly discourse on Syria, and on the conflict in particular. Through moving from micro to the macro, from micro to the macro, I hope nonetheless to pose some broader questions around identity construction, neoliberalization, resistance and revolution within today's reality of mass popularization, uprising and war. Abdullah, is my research assistant, is one of three brothers and two sisters. He stands at about five foot eleven. He wears his hairstyle tightened to the sides, blended down into designer stubble. He wears relaxed, athletic clothes, hooded jackets, jogging bottoms and the like. Abdullah often did profess to me this love for the revolution, yet his revolution had also nonetheless transformed into today's vicious conflict and proxy war. And thus my friend's future now sits suspended between destruction across the border and an ever-worsening socio-legal condition in Lebanon. In popular narratives, the Syrian uprising was once framed as just another iteration in a series of revolts. I'm sure we all know those stories. But in Syria, the tale begins not with a citizen martyr, but but with the arrest of schoolchildren from Dara, accused of writing uh, 2011 slogans on their schoolyard walls. Conflict increased, arms flooded in, and people fled out. But those who fled found little security across the border, where a whole host of laws and edicts now limit their freedom of movement, as well as their space for gainful employment and rights to a dignified existence. Against these facts, Abdullah's lingering love for the revolution points us back toward the depth of his political transformation. Indeed, despite being physically separated from the front line, migrant laborers in Lebanon often remarked remarked on a distinct shift in their life trajectories, a then and now divided between a moment of radical political commitment that I've called in my work revolutionary subjectivity. By those clunky and academic words, what I mean is actually quite simple. Revolutionary subjectivity is the point that any particular individual begins to see herself as part of a broader oppositional collective, unified by certain oppositional goals. It is then imagined that if those goals are achieved, this will bring about a radical transformation in society and in any given socio-political order. And for Abdullah and his mates, this goal was overthrowing the regime of Bashar al-Assad. In what remains... I will describe the merging of rebel and worker identities through key moments in Abdullah's life. In the process, begin formulating a foundation for a more dynamic bottom-up analysis that stresses the context through which these revolutionary commitments emerged, and thus how the final threads of the regime's legitimacy snapped for certain sectors of the population. I conclude that prior to the uprising, labor migration to Lebanon transitioned from a choice meaning some degree of consent to a coercive survivalist strategy and this transition has meant that whatever release valves migration had offered has now seized up and thus linking structurally the failure of remittance flows to build men's futures to the promised brighter future of a revolutionary transformation okay so when abdullah first learned about learned of anti-regime mobilization occurring back home in Syria, he became transfixed with Facebook, his apartment satellite television, and a little while later, when it was finally released, WhatsApp Messenger. A few months passed, and the intensity of street organization mounted, violence increased, and Abdullah made the decision that during the break from university, he'd go back home to to Azor. The men I befriended had all seemingly developed these commitments to the uprising from a distance. Migrant migrant laborers, due to the necessity of their remittance flows and their geographic distance, obviously lack any opportunity to participate in an intense way in the forms of street organization that was then going on back home. In many stories of the uprising and uprisings elsewhere and in other times, participants who've been interviewed often talk about their first experience of mobilization as generative of a kind of rebirth, making for a tight togetherness and collectivism. However, Abdullah's political consciousness preceded any of this direct participation uh, in frontline activity. So intrigued by this, I would ask the men how it was they came to be so political. Uh, Inevitably, I was pointed back to new communication technology. But as is often the case with academics, When I entered the field, I was highly sceptical of the techno-evangelist position that these were smartphone revolutions caused by Facebook and this narrative that became very familiar in the press. Yet, I had to measure my scepticism against the fact that I would be sitting in uh, migrant worker households looking at men looking at screens. And indeed, without exception, every Syrian laborer I knew owned some manner of an internet enabled smartphone device. Still perplexed, however, by this new reality when I first started the research, I would suggest to the men that they gather their phones together in the middle of the table and then we have a conversation. And this was never a popular move, but I, I would try to do it during focus groups at least. But thankfully, a little while later, I remembered that this is hardly the behavior of an anthropologist, which is anthropology is a d- discipline that makes a great deal out of participant observation methodology. So instead, I upgraded my own smartphone, joined their WhatsApp groups and the Facebook chats and the local co- local coordination committee groups, and tried my best to participate in their online lives as much as I did their offline lives. Through this, I learned that the media items that they valued, they valued, were important insofar as they seemed to actually offer a less mediated uh, form of coverage from across the border. Uh, yet images, videos, and stories uh, that my friends shared often came from local protest organizations back home. Many of these images were flowing across traditional kinship and friendship networks and village networks. So they got to trust because they seemed to be more direct and real, but also trusted because they came across much more traditional forms of association. So spurred on by a combination of media flows, offline conversations, and a general atmosphere of change around 2011, 2012, the men I knew appeared enthralled by the uprising. And evidencing this, my initial attempts at doing population surveys, which I was told as an anthropologist, you should go around with a clipboard because then you look like what a researcher should look like. Um, uh, I was met when I would start gathering genealogies, a very classic anthropologist thing to do. I was met with the response, this is boring, Philip. Talk to me about politics. Are you with the opposition? And even more worryingly, you don't say it, but I think you love the regime. (laughs) One of Abdullah's favorite stories uh, from 2011 Begins with him lounging around with mates in a cafe. They were noisily discussing events taking place in Dada. Abdullah had already attended a few planned protest meetings and informal gatherings. Some of us were saying it won't be longer than three months and Bashar will fall. Okay, some thought longer, but we were all convinced he was going, he said, reflecting back on that time. Just as he was debating the necessity to go back and support the nascent revolution, Another group, who he presumes were Haddad Amal supporting students. So, if you don't know, Haddad Amal is a political force and a militia in Lebanon that is tends to is pretty much aligned with the Syrian regime. Uh, they shouted a chain of insults back at us when they heard them discussing the events in Dara. It was like Syria, he said, and this was a man who hadn't quite yet been to Syria after the revolution. What he means by like Syria is that the relationship of Lebanese political forces was such that antagonisms flaring in his homeland could appear reproduced in Beirut. Indeed, of all of Lebanon's cities, Beirut stands out for its patchwork of neighborhoods allied with often opposing political forces, making for a particularly testing environment for Syrian opposition aligned Syrian laborers to migrate. Oh. Abdullah never graduated from college. He was expelled. In the winter of 2014, my friend approached another round of examinations, but decided against sitting the tests. Instead, he paid one of his peers to take them for him. Upon entering the hall, ID checks took place, and their plot was soon revealed. Abdullah was dismissed from university, and his years of study amounted to nothing. This was a real blow. He was one of the most intellectually gifted amongst his immediate kin, and as with many workers in a similar position, he thought he could balance part-time labor with study at the, Le- at the very affordable Lebanese university, we're talking a state university, nominal fees, thus generating an education, a remittance floor, cash for the future, and a means to avoid military service. So with Lebanese university, you would actually find quite a lot of, of, of impoverished uh, Syrian students there who would drag out for as long as possible their time because it would mean that they could avoid military service, pay reduced fees, and also make enough money to support their family. So his decision to travel abroad was eased by his family's long-standing connections to seasonal work in Beirut. And his elder brother, Ferraz, had worked in construction sites for some years. Abdullah lived with Ferraz when he first arrived. At that time, he told me, he would crossed into Lebanon with a vision of prosperity building toward a life of luxury. Unsurprisingly, his first night living on a shack below a construction site is an unpleasant memory. But regardless of his first impressions, Abdullah didn't want to disappoint his brother, who had managed to wrangle him some work on the site. He tried his best, but he couldn't work as a laborer, he said. He couldn't hack it. After two weeks, he quit. Yeah, I just hadn't gotten t- used to that type of work back then, he said. Abdullah was otherwise fortunate, quickly finding employment working odd jobs, odd jobs in, a, in a central Beirut uh, sports nutrition shop in Hamra in 2012 he was st- in 2012 when i met him he was still working there and meanwhile renting a spot in a two room apartment with eight other men so that's eight men in a in a two room apartment which is very standard with regards to his expulsion from university my friend was keen to stress that the punishment was draconian con- especially considering that he was well known as a hard working student his grade stood above the class average when his fate but when his fate was when his fate was revealed Abdullah found that he could carry no favor amongst even more friendly staff. In his later telling of the situation, he tells me he felt it came down to the simple fact of sectarian politics that were predominant at that time in Lebanese university. So Lebanese university is also known for being a Shia university or controlled by Shia political forces. So Abdullah's decision to cheat emerges within a chain of mounting, intensifying socioeconomic pressures. At that time, In 2014, his mother and sister were internally displaced now in Syria. His elder brother, Faraz was now with them. Faraz had allegedly been fighting with the Free Syrian Army, the unit in Deir Azor, having returned to Syria in 2013. But when he first learned that their father had died in mid-2014 from a heart attack, he returned to his mother's side. He had not yet returned to combat. They became internally displaced with the rest of their family when Islamic State crossed the border. Abdullah's village is one of a string of small agricultural settlements that run down the Euphrates towards the Iraqi border. When Daesh Islamic State crossed the border, their attempts to subjugate the tribal population met resistance, but eventually the villages fell and they remain occupied to this day. As a consequence of these events and concomitant hype of inflation, Abdullah's monthly remittances have shifted from necessary assistance to a sheer lifeline, He cobbled money together by working every hour of the day. However, as a consequence of all of this, he began missing classes, delaying on assignments, and finding himself unable to revise for exams. However, Abdullah had already invested much time in his degree, and with promise it still held for a better future, as well as the weight of his mother's pride, he had to find a solution, and it just so happened that solution was cheating. Any agency Abdullah might once have enjoyed in building a future through his education while providing his family through remittances, as was a pattern before, was now limited. So I attended his wedding a few months after this expulsion and weddings elsewhere are a central and important ethnographic feature. But when I began fieldwork in 2011, there was little expectation I'd have the opportunity to partake in a Syrian wedding. This was because for a time, Really, quite up until late in the, mobil- in the militarization, movement across the border from Lebanon to Syria remained relatively, a relatively open affair, affair for Syrians. Many men were making regular trips back home. Back then, I was spending my evenings hanging out on a construction site dotted across, construction sites dotted across central Beirut. These were evenings of card games, tales of love, and future brides and marriages. One of my closest friends back then was a young man called Muhammad. Mohammed had intended to work in Lebanon only for the summer. Through his cousin, he'd managed to secure accommodation on a central Beirut construction site while he actually worked next door in a nearby pastry shop. Mohammed is from rural Idlib back, a rural Idlib background. His father, he told me, was an out-of-work alcoholic and his brothers were too young, young to work. He estimated he was making double what he would earn back in Damascus for the same job. Against the mounting conflicts and rising economic inequality, Muhammad witnessed his planned future become fiction. He wanted to return to study in Damascus. He dreamed of becoming a journalist. But instead, he finally, when he finally went back to Syria, he ended up fleeing Idlib with his family to Turkey. As with, many of my, as with many like him, education and dreams were then put on hold. Another of Muhammad's cousins, who's actually the guy on the poster, uh... Uh, another of Muhammad's uh, cousins. Where have I lost myself? Bilal was a one-time was a one-time roadside banana seller. He also returned to Idlib. He he also returned to Idlib, but but Bilal took a different t- path. Bilal remains in his village today. First, he joined an FSA-aligned brigade, then Jabhat al-Nusra. Before, in 2015, abandoning all of that and joining the White Helmets. Today Balal searches wreckages for aerial bomb buildings looking for the bodies and survivors. In, contra- in contrast to these men who returned, Abdullah now is- remains somewhat stuck in Lebanon. The expectat- expected duration of residence has thus moved from total uncertainty to an increasing likelihood or even necessity for permanent settlement. So, how exactly did Beirut, once a place of temporary and seasonal employment, become a place for social reproduction. In other words, how is it that I came to attend the wedding of my research assistant?" Oh, and that's me looking very awkward dancing at the wedding in the, in the corner. <laughs> Abdullah's wife, Dalla, is from Idlib in northern Syria and from a family of moderately wealthy shopkeepers. She's very intelligent and have has become expert on the decrees, laws, and regulations governing those who attempt to gain entrance into Europe. Why does David Cameron say he'll only take 20,000 urgent cases, she asked me at dinner one mid-November and evening 2015. What exactly is an urgent case? All of Syria is an urgent case. Abdullah's background is, by contrast, tribal and agricultural. Despite these differences, they'd fallen for one another. Abdullah, Abdullah has wondered to me before, if his betrothal would have even been possible, if it were not for the upheavals in hierarchy that, em- that have emerged in the Syrian conflict's work. Indeed, in the present state of war and disp- displacement and economic degeneration, marriage costs are significantly lower. I don't have time to go into here, but there is certainly there is certainly not the only collision that I have recorded between love and the revolution um, in my work. For Abdullah, there was nevertheless a round of initial protestations from Dalla's father but eventually he consented to the marriage, given that Abdullah was, at that time, at least a student in university and had, his, and had work as a source of income. Where the young couple's home regions of Idlib and Deir Azor share similarities is in, the fact, is in the fact that they're both no longer within the Syrian regime's sphere of influence, but are controlled by opposition militias. During the conflict, Idlib has exchanged hands many times, and as of March 2015, it was successfully recaptured during an operation named Tahrir Idlib, uh, Liberate Idlib. The operation was launched by a coalition of Islamic resistance organizations, Jaysh al As I mentioned briefly earlier, Abdullah's village fell in 2014 from its relative isolation to become a region in the heart of the Islamic State. His tribe, the Shahi Tart, rose up against the occupation. But in so doing, they lost an estimated 1,500 of their men, which is actually the largest single Islamic State massacre on Syrian territory, I think. Um, And I I also lost two informants to that moment. These occupations go somewhere to explain why the wedding was not carried out in Syria. However... Travel to these regions remains, in fact, still technically possible with at least one regular bus departing from central Beirut and ending its journey journey in the de facto capital of the Islamic State, Raqqa. But if the young couple were from a more secured and and pacified regime area, their, their wedding would have likely still taken place in exile. This is because, in addition to the physical violence of war, a further and interrelated form of violence, bureaucratic structural violence, through the labour sponsorship system now delimits movement from, Le- from the Lebanese-Syrian border. And I will return to these limitations. My point here is just that warfare was, with warfare accelerating in Syria, day-to-day violence of state institutions were also determining the flow of things. And Abdullah finally decided that his wedding would have to take place in Beirut. We discussed the celebration and where to hold it many times. My friend changed his mind a lot. At first he thought a small party at home would do but with only his closest friends in attendance. For these were, of course, frugal times. But as more individuals expressed a desire to attend, Ad- Abdullah felt compelled to switch gear and, and uh, start to prepare a larger affair. There's a war though, I said. I said on the phone after he made the decision. Most of your guests are going to be re- uh, refugees and workers like you, surely they'd understand. My friends are not the problem, he answered back. I need, to show da- I need to show Dalla's family that I'm not poor and that I'm a good man. So finally, he settled on an adequate, but rather stripped down event space near Kola, a busy transport junction at the south of Beirut. The, spa- the space, a veranda above an argila cafe, did nonetheless provide ample room for dancing and socializing. Ab- Abdullah's former housemate, Haytham, Adnan, and Muhammad greeted me at the door. The three are cousins from a village not far from Abdullah's. Shardi's was also there, a friend they'd made made at university and from a larger city near the Iraqi border. Haitham is tall, slim, and handsome, with dark eyes set against well-shaped cheekbones. He studied with Abdullah at the Lebanese university, and the two remained friends for a prolonged period. However, at the time of writing, they are no longer on speaking terms. They now awkwardly avoid eye contact when passing. The, co- the, the cause of the fallout is money. Shortly before the wedding, Abdullah insists that he, wants, that he lent Haytham hundred dollars, and Haytham insists otherwise. Who am I, He's a self-interested person. Abdullah told me he's a liar. Responded Haytham, when I asked him about the fight. Haytham was once in a different economic position to the others. For a time, he received, he received rather than sent remittances. His studies were partially paid for thanks to his father's job here in Amman. He rented in Sabra and shared a small two room apartment with five other workers. It came in at about fifty dollars a month. Food costs were kept low with minimal expenditure going on luxuries, and he was able to survive he was able to survive without much work. He'd still occasionally take employment opportunities when they presented themselves, often through kin and friendship networks, but often he began but often but But as he began to near the end of his studies, uh, his father's job was now not proving quite enough in a very familiar story to support the entire family in Syria and his studies in Beirut. Haytham would also need to take construction work. Having finished his degree, he is now working full time, still in construction. Another resident of the apartment greets me at the door. His name was Mahmoud. Mahmoud worked with his uncle Khalid as gypsum board, in, gypsum board installers in luxury apartment construction projects. He's jokingly the self acknowledged housewife charged with, the house, charged with house cooking. He's an amazing chef, reproducing for the men their favourites from village cuisine with massive amounts of rice, chicken, and stuffed vegetables. Everything is consumed sitting on the floor in a circle, with hands reaching into the central plate. And water passed ground from the same jug thus reproducing in the urban space valued rural traditions back at the wedding after exchanging greetings with the men i moved upstairs to join the wedding party immediately i noticed that the bride's side of the room was heavily attended uh, this was likely down to the fact that nearly all of Dalla's immediate kin had long since uprooted to beirut um, uh, uh, aside from one uncle actually uh, I recognise some faces from the, I recognise some of uh, Abdullah's um, friends from our regular Sunday football matches that we'd play in Sabla Camp in the in the Astro turf there. This extravagance was possible thanks to Abdullah's insistence on, on what on what was a new tradition amongst young displaced worker refugees in Beirut. Collectively, his closest kin and friends pooled money together to assist in the venue hire, DJ, and the refreshment costs. This pooling was done, of course, with the expectation that such a gift will be returned when it's another's turn to wed. Back in Syria, back in Syria, Abdullah told me, some days after his ceremony, some days after the ceremony and the dowry, that men were prepared to drop at least one thousand dollars on the engagement party alone. By contrast, Abdullah's engagement party was a small gathering of friends in his shared apartment. He provided us with soft drinks and cigarettes. He told me that the dowry by Abdullah's parents had totaled just $600. Abdullah confirmed that people can't ask for more. And in, and in a story that's been, reportedly, been reported a lot in the press, is that the, the dowry costs have come significantly down. However, it is not, much, it, it is not so much at the wedding itself that is the source of Abdullah's current predicament, but more a whole host of obligations and limitations that have mounted as the conflict has increased. After the marriage, Abdullah moved, uh, moved out of his former home in Sabra with the aim of establishing a, a place for himself and his wife. The couple found an apartment in Sabra, uh, uh, sorry, in Buja Barajneh, another Palestinian camp to Beirut south. Due to its affordability, this camp, as with Sabra and Shatila, have become popular with Syrian worker refugees. The newly the newlyweds' rent now totaled $300 per month. The apartment, while conveniently located a walking distance to Dalla's kin, was unfurnished and unequipped. Abdullah took out an in-shop loan from a nearby shop. His debt came in at about $1,500 to outfit his new house. However, on top of these expenditures came the regular, regular internet and mobile phone bills, electricity generator, and the need to maintain $200 per month remittances for his family in Syria. And I, he's making, as a most Syrian workers, around $450 a month. So you can see how economically impossible this situation has has become. At the time of writing, my friend is moving in and out of stable employment. Dalla is working part-time too, and she's generating around $350 a month. However, a broken phone, a sudden demand for increased remittances to Syria, or the loss of a job, all risk pushing the couple into a state of total precariousness with little option aside from turning to Dalla's immediate kin and hoping that they have some spare cash. A few months after the wedding, in early November 2015, we all went for dinner and a cafe on the Corniche. Before the food arrived, we were smoking and drinking Pepsi and discussing what's next for the young couple. Well, I've still not found a job, said Abdullah, who'd been recently fired. You see, interjected Dalla, Lebanon can't give him a future, just work, low wages, high costs. ''Well, what should you do then, take a boat?'' I asked. ''Yes,'' she replied. ''My cousin's now in Germany. I want him to go too. There's nothing for us here.'' ''But so many people have died crossing,'' I replied. ''But how many people have died in Syria?'' Abdullah interjected. ''There's lots of pressure. What can I do? Stay here for nothing, go to the village and maybe someone will kill me. Or get on a boat and maybe I'll drown. I just don't want to leave and be so far from Syria. I want to go back to the village.'' I was, I was wrong to assume it was the risk of his life that was now the sole factor blocking my friend from relenting to his wife's pressure. This was not it. Instead, what pressed on his mind was the thought of finally leaving to Europe without, without, a passport and, without a passport and being detained, not knowing if he would ever able to return to Syria. Abdullah did not want to disconnect from his friends who might remain in Beirut and thus further divorce himself from any imagined future that he still clung to back home. But there's no future, insisted Dalla a second time. But what hope, what hope does he have in Europe? So many people can't get past the borders. What's going to happen to him then? But at that moment, we all looked up at a television screen hanging in the corner. Our eyes were drawn to the scenes of bloodied people running from smoking buildings. A twin bomb blast carried out, as we know now, by Islamic State, had moments earlier struck a popular market area in South Beirut. 43 people were killed and 200 wounded. The bombs exploded just two streets away from the young couple's new apartment. And at that moment, Abdullah's insistence that her husband set sail for Europe and forge a new life seemed a whole lot less rash. So, to fully contextualise these moments of desperation and the decisions they engender, I think it's important to reiterate that men like Abdullah had once experienced an opening up of possibility. From a distance in Beirut, they'd found themselves supportive of some alternative political force that promised, at least for a moment, a different future. Indeed, a common red thread running through all the stories I've collected is that during the early phases of the uprising, there was this palpable sense of excitement that spread through these migrant labor communities, and this was an excitement rooted in what, I think, what could be otherwise. Building on these sentiments, my researchers try to theorize more the cultural and emotional dimensions of revolutionary subjectivity. That is, a subjectivity for the first time that questions taken for granted assumptions and broke down the so called barrier of fear. And I say those words knowing full well that many academics have now made a career of themselves by questioning, and often rightly so. The neo- uh, neo-orientalist implications of describing the events of 2011 in terms of awakening and slumber, but st- I have to stay true to my informants. Awakening was a metaphor they they used, and it, for those for those who'd stick. it was a metaphor that they used for those who stick to claim in the uprising, marking, as I think it does, not show elsewhere in my work, a break in the flow of history. And why I hope an anthropological approach can contribute to our understanding of labour and revolutionary commitment is by by drawing attention to how the emergence, materialization, and degradation of these forms of political consciousness is never, in and of itself, some isolated political process. And what I mean by that is that the shape, texture, and depth of social cultural life impacts directly on revolutionary transformation. In orthodox Marxist theory, however, Revolutionary subjectivity is said to emerge at the point in which a class transitions from a class in itself, one who shares a common relationship with the means of production, to a class that acts for itself, itself, and, and, then, become, and then politically mobilizes and becomes, for the first time, an agent rather than merely a subject of history. For Marx, transformation in the modes of production results in a dialectical interplay between the objective and subjective the objective and subjective conditions that are predominant in any given society. It is this interplay that produces class consciousness, and I avoided using the term class consciousness because of all of this uh, related theoretical baggage. In this frame, arguments purporting to identify the root cause of the Syrian uprising would do well to follow those roots themselves, that is, to begin in the earth, at the base point of socio-economic reproduction and in so doing reveal how certain emerging antagonisms were endured negotiated and eventually resisted seen against physical and structural violence the syrian uprising and the broader politi- broader political economic structures that lay foundations for that uprising function as overdetermining frames through which migrant men migra- through which uh, migrant men navigate their lives many of their small everyday decisions Uh, including choices about where and who to marry, or potentially to divorce, necessarily materialize, of course, within these broader impersonal historical developments. But when dealing on the level of the day-to-day, should we not also take seriously the emotional and personal dimensions of an individual's revolutionary experience? Nonetheless, while new technology facilitated the development and transmission of these personal revolutionary politics, there were, indeed certain offline factors that we must acknowledge for they lay, the, they lay the base for the uprising itself. What I mean by that is that Abdullah and his mates, who were just like ordinary men were just ordinary men from small farming villages, similar to thousands of other farming villages across Syria, increasingly found themselves at the bottom rung of a process that might be otherwise called accumulation by dispossession. Accumulation by dispossession is a concept popularized by the geographer David Harvey. Harvey himself, who's building on Marx's notion of primitive accumulation, set out to identify how the neoliberal policy core represented by financialization, privatization, the ending of redistributive measures, and the manipulation of crisis has resulted not in mutual prosperity for all, but an ever increasing flow of power and wealth to an ever narrowing section of elites. These measurements are at the heart of the IMF's structural adjustment conditions that must be met if a country is to receive a loan. Syria, however, unlike the more officially western oriented Arab states, has not been subjected directly to these pressures. However, the IMF's spectral ghost-like presence and influence can still be located within the economic ministries with regards to their financial policies and what they've been been carried out since since the early 2000s. And for this, I would really recommend uh, Linda Matar's book on investment in Syria as excellent, uh, the best book on, on charting these policies. So, these economic policies represent a key foundation that, in my view, underpins all the various demographic, environmental, and political triggers for the recent round of Arab uprisings. In, the, in this manner, the eminent scholar of Syria, Raymond Heinebush, has focused on what he calls authoritarian upgrading, Upgrading means the process by which the regime, through a combination of internal and external pressures, was forced to liberalize its economy. The regime maintained its anti-imperialist posturing while also keeping in pace, place the repressive state apparatus. It is evident that rural Syria was particularly hard hit by this upgrade, and as a number of scholars who have now shown, These reforms devastated whatever capacity had remained for socio-economic production amongst rural citizens. But this economic neglect and its de-development outcomes proved politically suicidal, given that Syria's rural hinterland and its agricultural towns and cities once constituted the base of the Ba'ath Party's core support. It is then, by no coincidence, that the Syrian countryside represents the areas in which early anti-regime protests first flared. And where, at a later stage, jihadi organisations could secure a ready recruiting pool of elite, uh, a ready brooding pool of poor, out-of-work men. Places like Dara, for example, had previously benefited from state assistance in agriculture, price capping and investment in irrigation, and price capping and investment in irrigation systems. But in recent years, the fellahin have found it increasingly difficult uh, to even be- make for a basic form of um, reproduction. Before 2000-2010, the proportion of Syria's population directly employed in agriculture declined from 33% to 10%, yet before the uprising, an estimated 46% of Syrians lived in rural areas, indicating a high degree of unemployment and underemployment. This shock could for some years be warded off through these long-standing migration and remittance flows that many villages maintained through relatives working in Lebanon and sometimes the Gulf. However... From the 1990s onwards, these flaws began to transform. No longer a source of cash injection, migration to urban centers became increasingly economically essential. These objective, con- these objective economic conditions are revealed in a context that gave rise in part to the pressures Abdullah faced in selling his labor for survival wages. These conditions fed the impossibility of relying on his family's land and his father's vegetable shop back home. But this has been a long-growing form of impossibility. Together, together, this together this meant his migration, his brothers, and the migration of many dis, of, of many I've described were part and parcel of, a, of an increasingly rural displacement. The Syrian countryside was stripped of what little capacity it had to provide for any uh, reproduction of human life. The fact that the fellahin, as well as rural urban workers, were often the first to rebel against these conditions of displacement. Should come consequently as little surprise. Through, though, uh, th- uh, through this context, we begin to see why a glimmer of revolution was able to find appeal amongst rural migrant men. But one does not support an uprising on the basis of economic calculations, but on what those economic calculations mean mean for one's ability to fulfill various socio-culturally defined life roles: husband, father, provider. Thus, political economies of exploitation must be situated first and foremost in the everyday insofar as that exploitation impinges on culturally defined principles and practices in daily life. So I think it's not for nothing that the most common example that was cited to me for accelerating prices amongst interviewees was always the bag of sugar. Consider, for example, the role of sugar in drinking sweetened black tea. The exchange of tea is, as anyone who's visited Syria can attest, a most basic form of hospitality, such that to make sweet tea unaffordable is to deny a fundamental part of what it means to be a Syrian. And I think we can acknowledge these cultural value denials whilst also not romanticizing them at the same time. For to take this particular tea observation a step further, traditions of hospitality are not isolated themselves from other social relations of exploitation. Hospitality to guests is often only made possible through the extraction of women's labor either directly in the, in the male host's household or through female wage labor on sugar plantations elsewhere. Indeed, I talk elsewhere in my work about how the, uh, how the fundamentally patriarchal and heteronormative formations of hierarchical masculinity were, were, threatened by, were themselves threatened by Syria's neoliberal agenda. And here I think we can actually start to see, and this is a project I want to develop in the future, some of the shadows between what happened in Syria and what's happening now in the United States of America. But my point is simply that the emergence of revolutionary subjectivity is always connected to a whole web of sociocultural value denials. But from this analytic perspective, then, there is no such thing as a bread riot. Perhaps only in economic textbooks are commodities stripped of these important symbolic functions and historical associations. Uh, so conclusions from consent to coercion. So now, stepping back once again, prior to the intensification of the Syrian conflict, there once existed a clear pattern of migration and return. Even up until the early 2000s, there was a pattern that, to a certain degree, helped men build futures and made possible the realization of valued life stage rituals, even if we think those particular rituals and stages are problematic in and of themselves. In short, it allowed for sugar in tea. And during this period, men undertook largely seasonal work and extended labor. There was little sign of permanent settlement and few signs of a second generation of Syrian workers making good in Lebanon. This pattern is specifically the phenomenon that political sociologist John Chalcraft in his book, The Invisible Cage, set out to explain. His argument, drawing on Gramsci, revolves around hegemonic incorporation. This arrangement sees Syrian workers embedded within objectifying structures of accumulation by, com- by, combinations of co- co- uh, by combinations of coercion and consent, repression and choice. This pattern of migration and return is not entirely determined by structural factors, notably, uh, notably economic decline in rural areas, nor by the sheer agency of the migrant who seeks fortunes abroad. But by these multiple overlapping forms of agency and control. For childcraft, the subjectivity of the migrant. Uh, okay, I said that. Sorry. What Abdullah's case suggests is that this interpretation of Syrian migrant labor flows has now reached its limit. And more than that, it suggests that the pattern of travel and return was unraveling before the uprising even began to break. The Lebanese state is aware that it faces the possibility now of a more permanent settlement and has since 2014 intensified, intensified legal barriers. Indeed, the extension and continuation of Syria's destruction has now coincided with a whole host of legislative legislative limitations that now severely inhabit the lives of Syrian laborers in Lebanon, producing in their wake further immiserating conditions that risk handing the workers over to the likes of Daesh or otherwise the smugglers' boat. On December 31st, 2014, the General Security Directorate of Lebanon issued a decree that stipulated that the entrance and residency of Syrians and Lebanons now falls under the discretion of the Ministry of Social Affairs and the Security Directorate. This ruling effectively nullified the long-standing free movement agreement that has existed between Beirut and Damascus. According to Section 7 of the decision, Syrian nationals are only permitted entrance into Lebanon, And there's a big list of why they're allowed in if they for travel, business, visits, shopping, owner of real estate or tenant in Lebanon, study, transit, medical treatment or visa application in a foreign embassy. Workers must obtain a permit from their employer, as well as a letter of sponsorship from a Lebanese citizen. Employees must also pay a fee for every Syrian they hire and documents must be signed by a public notary. In some this marks for the first time the, Lebanons, the, the, the kafala system being implemented in Lebanon for male Syrian migrant workers. It exists already for domestic workers. A real-world warning regarding these Byzantine levels of bureaucracy came when Khalid, a 40-year-old gypsum board specialist um, in one of from one of Abdullah's neighboring villages, was denied re-entry upon his return from Syria. Khalid had for several months hoped to restart his family's farm, he was fed up with working in Beirut and just wanted to return to his, just wanted to return home. Regardless of what difficulties he might entail, he was a very stubborn guy. He was, however, upon finding it was obviously nearly impossible to make this desire a reality desire a reality, he was compelled to return, only to discover on the border a newly required vast array of paperwork, passports, and letters needed to secure re-entry. It took two months and much effort before he was back in Beirut. The government claims the Lebanese government claims that these laws are designed to protect Lebanese jobs. While these arrangements were first announced, they were they were when these arrangements were first announced, they were almost immediately um, uh, rejected by Lebanon's major contracting and construction firms. Their main objection was that these laws risked their ready supply of cheap, exploitable Syrian labour. They didn't use the word exploitable. Their labor was cheap because it was foreign. Aside from Palestinians, unskilled manual labor has has almost always been entirely Syrian. These are not Lebanese jobs, but jobs for Syrians in Lebanon. The Lebanese Construction Syndicate of Public Works estimates that in 2014, 350,000 Syrian workers were just distributed amongst 244,000 companies Obviously, much, much, much higher than that. The value of their, represent, the value of their represented companies is over $10 billion, according to the head of the syndicate. The cost of sponsoring a Syrian worker is around $2,000 annually, whereas he estimates the average wage for a laborer is $20 a day and $30 a day for a four-person. However, the International Labor Organization estimates that the situation is even worse with the average Syrian wage in Lebanon coming in at $287 per month for men, and I think that's a wage that incorporates outside of Beirut, which is 40% less than the allegedly notional minimal wage of $448. The Lebanese Ministry of Labour recognized these protestations and were really were, were really about multi-million dollar businessmen objecting to spending what amounted to a tiny degree of their profit on legalizing the status of their employees, The primary benefactor of the flow of workers into Lebanon remains, then, whichever way you look at it, a small cluster of elites. Instead of protecting jobs, the real effect of the kafala system is more accurately framed, perhaps, as monitoring and controlling the Syrian population with some sort of desire to decrease the likelihood of permanent settlement. This fact was close to being explicitly acknowledged by the Lebanese Minister for Social Affairs, who, in response to British embassy calls that labour laws be relaxed, now the European Union has also joined in with these calls. But, of course, these calls have their own political economies and reasons. Uh, he said he replied to them, "Lebanon is not a warehouse for people." However, in the same interview, he then went on to repeat the line that changing the law is not possible and it may not be appropriate, considering the high rate of Lebanese underemployment. Given that companies appear unwilling to sign the pledge of responsibility and perhaps permit and permit and prepare permits for their staff the result is that the kafala system has been to suddenly transform sections of of the syrian population in lebanon into even more highly precarious now illegal workers even more ripe for exploitation indeed before the implementation of the law nine percent of syrians were estimated to be illegally resident in but by june 2014 so a few months after the law A good, solid legal NGO estimates that the figure has now hit 70% of legality. At that time, at the time of the law's implementation, the warehousing company that was then employing Abdullah refused to sponsor its workers. Many of the Syrian laborers I know, especially those who live in areas popular with uh, fellow workers, now report the proliferation of private offices that will carry out labor sponsorship for Syrians, but at seemingly exorbitant fees. The cost of residence for an individual could potentially reach $1,200 to $2,000. It's very unclear as to what the costs actually are. It appears then that the law is also now functioning to enable additional value grabs from the workers' pocket. So to draw this outline to a temporary conclusion, because everything is temporary when you're talking about Syria, I think that whatever element of consent remained within, uh, w- within the labor migration pattern has eroded and eroded to it is eroded to the, it is eroded, uh, eroded first to generate support for the revolution and then further to the, and further to then make it that the only space remaining for any choice is whether abdullah boards an illegal and dangerous boat to europe or continues suffering in lebanon Syrian workers in lebanon are thus caught tragically between physical violence at home and structural economic violence in lebanon